Hello, hello, hello. My name is Kristen Gutu, and this is the fourth episode of Technically Biased, the podcast that discusses bias in tech. I'm particularly excited about today's episode because we will be discussing one of the more memorable books I read in the last few years called Code Girls, The Untold Story of the American Women Codebreakers of World War II by Liza Mundy. And fun fact, this book really helped me pull the trigger on switching into uh, a more tech-focused role. Great book, super inspiring. And Mundy is a nonfiction journalist who writes about history, culture, politics, and gender. And her work has been published in Time, The Atlantic, Slate, and The New Republic, among others. So great author, great book, even more amazing women to inspire us inside the pages of Code Girls. I'm excited to use this research to really tie in some of the other points discussed in previous episodes of this podcast. And the whole point of this show, Technically Biased, is to analyze how the biases we are codifying in technology today are so systemic, uh, so foundational that we don't even recognize them, right? So I think that's usually the case that these biases are unintentional, but regardless of whether they are conscious or not, they are present and we need to learn how to identify them and then how to properly mitigate them. So Code Girls tells the history of the American women codebreakers of World War II, just as the name implies, but that came forward, and not only did they come forward, but of the U.S. Army and the American Navy combined, three quarters of our codebreakers at this time were women. So they played a significant role, and they did their work incredibly And so before I get into this story, I want to put everything in context regarding Code Girls, but also regarding the other books we've discussed so far and some of the other history points we've touched on. So to understand the scarcity of women in tech today in America, which only a rough 10% or so of AI experts today in America are women. And we can argue that that stemmed in meritocracy, but we can also argue that women and people of color have different barriers and we need to acknowledge this point. So to understand this scarcity, we're going to take it back to the initial gender bias that has kept women out of science. And instead of going back too many centuries ago, we'll only go back to the mid-1800s. And during this time frame, we come across the one and only Charles Darwin. I've mentioned him before, 
But Darwin very much believed that scientifically it was fact men were intellectually superior to women. So Charles Darwin is a significant scientist, so we need to acknowledge that he not only had this mentality, but he recorded it as fact, and he further believed that women were at least morally superior to men, and for women to overcome their biological inequality in their inferior intellect, they would have to become breadwinners like men. But of course, it's not that easy because Darwin continues to note that it wouldn't actually be good for a woman to become a breadwinner because working mothers might damage uh, their children and the happiness of their households. So Darwin puts this in writing. He records it as fact. That's now the case. You know, this isn't being argued. It's not an opinion. This is society's perception of women. It's how women perceive themselves. It's the status quo. And we need to understand how people were primed to believe this and the different roles that gender plays in society. So we talked about this with um, Angela Saini and her book, The Patriarchs, How Men Came to Rule. But it's very important to understand the framing of perspectives, right? And Darwin points to the fact that women aren't equals to men, and how could they be? Because look at what they've achieved and look at what they've contributed. Or more accurately, look at what they haven't achieved and look at what they haven't contributed, right? So one of the badasses of 1881 is my girl, Caroline Kennard, and she wrote to Darwin regarding this misogyny, and I quote, Let the environment of women be similar to that of men and with his opportunities before she be fairly judged intellectually his inferior, end quote. And so again, with Angela Saini, we discussed this concept of inferiority and superiority among the genders, this power structure and this patriarchal mentality that needs reinforcing and I bring this up because this mentality specifically that men were intellectually superior women were morally superior they belonged in the household they belonged at home with the family they were the caregiver the home taker this was very big during the 1950s and 1950s America coincides with a post-war America. So now if we introduce Code Girls, we can rewind a few years before that 1950s housewife trope. And if we take it back to 1941, December, Pearl Harbor is attacked, World War II is launched. And so in 1942, there's still this mentality that women are intellectually inferior, that women shouldn't be receiving an education, that it's actually bad for women to receive education. And, you know, they had, of course, like we have today, the extremists of their time who went so far as to believe that a woman that has too much knowledge might even become infertile. 
So we really put this idea of education in the most unattractive light we can for women. So of course then, in 1942, only a rough 4% of American women had a four-year degree because there was so much stigma against women being educated. On top of everything already mentioned, it didn't make economic sense to invest in a woman's education because one, she became less attractive as a partner, the more educated she became. And two, there weren't actually that many jobs for women anyway. So unless they wanted to be a school teacher, it didn't give them many options. And you need to note that even many teaching jobs had a marriage bar restricting women to only teach if single and to quit once married. So there were a lot of restrictions on what married women could and couldn't do. And in that same vein, if a woman was working and she was married, legally her salary was transferred to her husband so that he could manage the finances. And only single women were allowed to own their own salaries. So we have this narrative that tells women if they're single, that's seen as a bad thing. If they're working, that's seen as a bad thing. And women that went to college, again, many people had this notion that they were doing it, and they may have been doing it, to receive their MRS degree, or in other words, to find a husband and become a missus. And so there's this notion that at the end of any investment, the goal should be to find a husband. So it's interesting now that a society that views these educated women so terribly as just, you know, rebellious um, and promiscuous even for wanting to do, to educate themselves and to further themselves. And so now we're at a time where World War II is in swing and our eligible men have evacuated to go fight and so that leaves a country of primarily women and children so the u.s suddenly the economy had to turn to women to fill the positions of code breakers and crypt analysts and statisticians and engineers and anyone they could hire that could help them protect the men on the ground and so what's even more interesting is that so we have this society pushing back against the education of women and then suddenly these women that are educated are being recruited they're seen as so valuable so now overnight we see the u.s army and the american navy approaching universities like Goucher and the Seven Sisters Colleges, which were deemed comparable to the Ivy Leagues because the Ivy Leagues did not accept women. And so suddenly these universities and their deans and their professors are being approached to identify top talent in math and science and language for the Navy and the Army. 
and these women are in demand. Now, according to archival history that Mundy touches on, the Navy asked two questions to the women they interviewed. One, do you like crossword puzzles? And two, are you engaged to be married? The women that answered yes and then no accordingly were invited for additional cryptanalytic training. Now, what's ironic here is that these women were seniors in college. And so because of the time that it was and because of that era's gender expectations and gender norms, society expected these women to be married or to be engaged at the very least by this time. And so many of them were. And so even among the women that answered no to being engaged, that was not always the truth. And so we see women lying about their relationships because they are suddenly given an alternative to marriage. They're given an alternative to settling down with someone. And that's what continues to make this whole narrative ironic because these women and society keep failing to see eye to eye uh, with one another. These women are excited by the opportunity to do what they don't even know yet. It's confidential. They're not even aware what they are interviewing for, but they know it's something important. It sounds exciting. And so we have women consciously, actively looking to pursue themselves at the expense of a relationship. And yet everyone else is approaching them by dangling this shiny relationship that they don't even want in front of them. And so the Navy did just that. They decided we're going to find our most handsome recruits or our most handsome officers and send them out to go find women recruits. And the whole logic was that these men are so handsome, the women will start talking to them, hear about this vague concept that's happening that they need to be recruited for. And these women will just be so enamored that they will invest in the program and they will commit to the program with the goal of finding a husband in the process. So we see this time and again, we see this from the other end where the Navy and the Army were told to only recruit attractive women because in short, it would make the process easier of pushing her back into a domestic role once the war ended. And so I have a quote from Mundy's book of, quote, one electrical company asked for 20 female engineers from Goucher with the added request, select beautiful ones for we don't want them on our hands after the war, end quote. So there's this very intense and very aggressive agreement that these women are useless, that they're not as smart as men, that they're temporary, that they should only be valued for their looks and for their capacity to maintain a happy household and it's quite shocking and it's not shocking at all but we need to realize that by 1945 by the end of the war 
70% of the Army's codebreakers and 80% of the Navy's domestic codebreakers were women. So again, three-fourths of the combined Army and Navy's codebreakers are women. We see that they are more than capable of taking care of men. They are code breaking, they are decoding any encrypted messages from the Japanese and the Germans, and they're playing critical roles. And of course, there are many names that we should know and don't know. And one of them is Dorothy Dot Braden, so Dorothy Braden, known as Dot. And Mundy touches on her quite a bit in the book. And to understand the stature of some of these crypt analysts, they were so involved that Dot was aware that the Japanese had surrendered even before then President Truman. So we have very important women working on these very important missions and projects. And of course, I forgot to mention one of the most important caveats. These women were being hired under confidential terms and were told to tell people that they were secretaries. So not only were their roles confidential, not only did they tell people that they were working on trivial matters, and not only did people very easily buy that up, but many even thought that this secretarial work was essentially code for keeping the officers happy. And so again, there's this promiscuous undertone where these women are working on a very noble cause, and even though they cannot provide information, the way people run with this information is to assume that if a woman is working on any important mission related to what was then happening, then of course it had to be sexual or it had to be promiscuous or rebellious or dirty. And God forbid they gave these women the recognition or the respect or the appreciation that they deserved but not only was that not the case we see this stigma before the war where we believe as a society that women are inferior this stigma continues to be perpetuated throughout the war because we don't see the work of these women and we have nothing to challenge this belief that women are inferior and then with the return of men post-war, we see again the continuation of enforcing this mentality that women are intellectually inferior and enforcing this mentality that as the morally superior gender, they should be the one in the household, they should be the one at home. And so we see this happen as soon as the men come home, women are let go from these positions they're unable to discuss them because it is confidential and they know their odds if they were to leak such critical information so they can't be acknowledged they can't continue working in the industry or in the field that they have become experts in in the field that they are the only experts in because it is such a new field and so they are literally teaching the men that are going to replace them pre-firing process because they are told that they need to 
impart their wisdom while also being told that they're not smart enough to do the role and that's why they need to be replaced. So if we return to Darwin's pseudo-scientific wisdom, he mentioned that for women to overcome this biological inequality of their intellectual inferiority, then they would have to become breadwinners like men. But then, of course, we see that throughout history, when women have tried to become breadwinners, they were not accepted with the open arms that they so deserved because of the societal expectations and the way society was primed to react. So we see ourselves going in circles, asking ourselves why women don't have more experience, but then creating barriers to entry. I know this was 1950s, but I could reference Susan Fowler's whistleblower book regarding um, Uber and point to the terrible management that went on during Travis Kaepernick's time and the many men that would proposition their female juniors for sex and the way they gamed the diversity bonus by blocking the transfer of women so that if they couldn't transfer, that meant they remained on their team and the managers would then get bonuses for maintaining diversity. So of course we see this manifestation in different ways. There were barriers to entry seven decades ago. There are barriers to entry now. The difference is that there are fewer women today that are interested in STEM positions than there were decades ago. And again, this is because of the way we have primed women and society to view the capacities of women. And I can speak firsthand of this, having been told by a high school math teacher that women were intellectually inferior in math and I shouldn't be upset if I cannot do well because it is a innate biological restriction that I have no capacity over and so this mentality is very much perpetuating itself today it's perpetuating itself unconsciously and it's important to understand that it's definitely being perpetuated algorithmically and we might not understand the extent we might not realize it we may never realize it but if we so innately perceive women as intellectually inferior, as morally superior, as more promiscuous and rebellious, then these biases that are so deeply ingrained are going to affect the way we codify tech and the way we target women and men and non-binary people. And it's going to influence us, especially when the people that are writing this code are 90% men, 70% white in America, again, of our experts. And so, of course, they're going to codify biased perspectives because how can you know what you don't know? And society does a really good job of selling misinformation to benefit itself. So, a lot to consider here. I'm going to wrap it up before I talk for 10 more hours. So 
Thank you all for listening. Tune in for next week's episode of Technically Biased, and have a great day.